Hello, and welcome to Conversation at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, I'll sit down with Sam Murphy, Manager of Historic Trades here at Mount Vernon. A brief bit of housekeeping before we get to the interview. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Grist Mill and Distillery a lot today uh, here at Mount Vernon, and if you'd like to see that before the end of the season on November 1st, uh, you better come visit week. Uh, if you do not follow us already on social media at GW Books on Twitter and Instagram and at The Washington Library on Facebook, we'd appreciate if you did so. And also, while you're at it, be sure to go ahead and rate and subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed it. And without further ado, here's my interview with Sam Murphy. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Yeah, delighted to be here. Uh, you know, could you, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of our listeners are, are aspiring uh, public historians, museum studies uh, folks. Could you, for, first of all, just start off by walking us through your background and how you got to be here at Montverna? Uh I actually was that family you saw on the side of the road in the station wagon reading roadside markers. Um, history, especially colonial history, was very important to us and our family. I, Growing up, I lived very close to Colonial Waynesburg, and we would go and visit all the time. People coming in from out of town, it was always a trip to Colonial Waynesburg. And truth be told, by the time I was 12, if I never saw another tricorn hat, it would have been too soon. <laughs> uh, but the older I got, the more I started to really understand and appreciate the sacrifices that so many people made for our freedom. And started to go back to Colonial Williamsburg, looking at it from an entirely different angle. Uh, Decided um, after just a little bit of epiphany uh, about my career choices, and I had been in uh, medical sales and as a director of sales for a healthcare company, that there was a whole lot of difference between quality of life and quantity of life. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to do something I really like. So I started out working for the Colonial Waynesburg Foundation. Um, My journey led me here um, as a volunteer. Uh, Started as a volunteer here in 2010. Uh, Saw an ad posted for a part-time historic trades interpreter position. I thought, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Started that um, next year went full time, um, and now I am the manager of Historic Trades. Uh, now, just to uh, you know, to help our audience, you know, the either uh, if they've been here, you know, and it's maybe been a while since they've been here, or if they haven't had the chance to come here yet, uh, which Historic Trades are represented on on the estate? Wonderful question. Um, historic Trades, we have three distinct units. We are costumed interpreters who have the luxury of being able to look at 18th century events and put them in a 21st century perspective. We operate the Pioneer Farm site uh, down on the Potomac. The blacksmith shop, as well as the grist mill and distillery, are all under the auspices of historic trades. Right. Uh, I mean, how do you... I mean, I, I guess on the one hand we do internal training, but I mean, how do you how do you blacksmiths, right? You just don't see a lot of 18th century blacksmithing anymore. That's not really something you find on like link, somebody's LinkedIn profile. Uh, so, how do you all go about finding uh, the folks for this? Um, oftentimes, it's rather serendipitous yeah. that we will post for a position. Uh, this happened for us uh, about two years ago. 
we were looking for additional interpreters. And one of the folks that applied was a blacksmith. Um, those are a little harder to find. Um, there are blacksmith guilds, but uh, really trying to find people that understand that that trade is not only a combination of fabricating or repairing items here as it was done in the 18th century, but also interacting with the 1.2 million visitors who come to Mount Vernon each year. Um, it takes a special breed, if you will, to be able to do both the activity and then explain mm -hmm. exactly the process and uh, being able to take the question that maybe you've heard yeah. uh, 50 times that day and give the same answer that you would have if it had been the first time you'd ever heard the question. Uh, and that's really what, what we as an operation really attempt to do, um, is give perspective of 18th century events. And also, if we can create parallels for people in their lives mm -hmm. to be able to see themselves in that time period, um, and then if you can create a convergent point of where they really will suspend disbelief and now place themselves in that situation it gives them a whole new understanding and appreciation for really just surviving the 18th century. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, uh, it, we're, we're obviously doing an, an audio podcast here so no one can see, but you are, in fact, actually in uh, in, in, in uh, pants and, and, and long sleeve shirt and, and the waistcoat because mm -hmm. uh, you've, you've just walked over from <laughs> work. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, so that, that's the other thing that sort of strikes me, right, is, is your staff has to have the skills to be able to actually do the that trade, mm -hmm. they have to be able to talk about it in a cogent manner that connects the public to the 18th century. Uh, they have to have the customer service skills to deal with 1.2 million people a year, and they have to do all of this while wearing uh, period clothing. Period clothing in the in the uh, heat of the Virginia summer. Correct. Uh, I, I like my air-conditioned office in the library, and mm -hmm. I, I really don't know how you all do it. Um, we are a small but dedicated group of people. Um, it is not easy what we do. and But our staff has this really joy of sharing what 18th century life was all about. We also are able to demonstrate a lot of the activities here at the estate during that time, the blacksmith shop mm -hmm. obviously being one. At the Pioneer Farm site, uh, this is June for us, and it's dairy month. Uh, I was making butter and cheese and ale bread yesterday out on site, so people could see what went into mm -hmm. uh, putting food on the table, that it wasn't just going to the grocery store. We do processing of wool for making winter weight clothing. So not only are we taking the wool sheared from the sheep uh, by our livestock team, but we're washing it and carting it and spinning it and weaving it, um, dyeing it in, in cases, to turn it into a finished product. Uh, that putting clothes on is not going to your local department store and pulling something off the rack, that there was a process to put clothes on your back. Um, 
for many people, it is an eye-opening experience. Um, one of the things that we spend a lot of time in our training with, with new staff is for them to have the understanding that for many people, they've never seen a tomato plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't know how they get the flower. Uh, so we take them through the entire well, process. Well, order it on Amazon. Well, that's it. You <laughs> could. Um, but for us, we have, a, especially at the Pioneer Farm site, we have a small demonstration farm that mimics Washington's crop rotation approach to farming in the 18th century, where we grow the same things that he did. Our interns have just finished harvesting wheat. Uh, We will then take that and we will take it into the 16-sided treading barn. And in about a week, uh, starting July 4th, we will bring horses into the treading barn and people are able to see how Washington's invention takes the wheat from the field and turns it into, eventually we'll turn it into flour. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're the processing stage of taking the wheat stalks and extracting the seeds before sending those seeds, the wheat berries, over to the grist mill. Uh, It really is, and it's a lot of hands-on activities, uh, but Back to the original question, it, our staff is incredibly dedicated. Um, we have a love of history. You, you have to um, in order to be able to go out on a day when it can easily be 100 degrees and 95% humidity, dressed in period clothing, and in some cases answer the same question just over and over and over again, but with the understanding that although you may have heard that question 50 times mm-hmm. today, that's the first time the guest has asked that question. Um, so they deserve the respect to get that question answered as though that's the first time you've mm-hmm. ever heard it. And we're really, I would like to say we are really, really good at doing that. We're, we're quite proud of our group. Uh, for being able to put up with a lot of uh, conditions that are less than ideal and still be able to share their knowledge, uh, their love of history, and especially what's happening here at Mount Vernon and uh, sharing Washington's focus of agriculture and how he has really set the stage for the change in approach to agriculture here in colonial America. Uh, so we're, we're pretty proud of it. How many, how many people are in this? In trades, we have, I think, about 30, a little over 30 people, plus we have seven interns this summer. We bring in a group of college students to live and work at the estate from early June until early through early August. Uh, they live and work here on the estate and become part of our team. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, but I was actually making a note to, to make sure I, I talk to you after this so that uh, we can make sure that our producer puts the, uh, the link to the, uh, the, interview, or the applications for next year on because okay. we want to certainly promote that because uh, the interns are great. Uh, and they come from all over the world. They do. Uh, we have six George Washington entrepreneur interns. They come from, we have one of our our interns this year is from Seattle, Washington. 
Uh, we have one who lives here in Arlington, Virginia, but goes to school mm-hmm. um, in Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, and then Louisiana, South Carolina, Missouri. Uh, they come from all over, as well as one of our interns is a Society of the Cincinnati intern, uh, someone who is related to uh, French aristocracy during the Revolutionary War, uh, but also comes and lives and works side by side with all of us in historic trades. Well, the French Revolution took care of that. Yeah, yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to find, you got to make a living now. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I love every time I go over to the side of the estate just watching you all do the work and there's stuff to think like, oh, I should go swing a blacksmith hammer. And then I'm like, that's, it's going to last for like 10 seconds and I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what are the, uh, what are the, well, we'll, we'll, I think, well, well, let's start with the history, right? Let's, let's start with the 18th century. What was the scale of uh, the, the farming operation on Mount Vernon? Well, Washington inherits a 2,100-acre tobacco plantation. When he takes control of Mount Vernon, we're still under British rule. And the tobacco trade was really skewed to support the British mercantile system. Mm -hmm. You're required to send your tobacco over to England in exchange for credit to purchase their British manufactured trades goods. It worked really well for them, not so much for us. Uh, When tobacco goes into a free fall in its price, Washington has a factor, a representative in London, who will take care of his interests taking the tobacco to market, selling it, and then buying all the items on the shopping list that Washington sends along. The problem is when, with tobacco, you're getting declining yields year over year because tobacco is ruinous to the soil. Uh, You're up against competition from tobacco-growing colonies all up and down the eastern seaboard. Washington sends his tobacco over, factor takes it to market, sells it, buys all the items on the shopping list and sends the trade goods back. And well, imagine Washington's surprise as he starts unpacking all the trade goods, not only to find what he's ordered, but find a bill. Mm-hmm. He hasn't sent over enough tobacco at market prices to cover the cost of the goods he's ordered. Factor says, that's okay. I know you're good for it. So instead of sending the shortage of payment now for the goods you've already received, I'll just wait and take that payment out of next year's harvest with interest. Well, Compounding debt, which is really what it boils down Mm -hmm. to, was not something Washington's willing to embrace. He looks for replacement crops for tobacco and actually looks at hemp and flax as replacement crops for the tobacco. Uh, But Washington settles in on wheat as his new cash crop. It's not treated to the same restrictions that tobacco was. Within five years of starting the conversion from tobacco to wheat, Washington's out of debt. His wheat harvest has increased 24-fold. He now starts the process of buying up neighboring farms. Uh, Because everybody had been growing tobacco, the soil was in pretty bad shape, meaning the land was cheap. And Washington, ever the student of what was called the new husbandry, which was really a new scientific approach to farming. Washington reads about crop rotation. He will implement a seven-year crop rotation plan into his farming enterprise 
Mount Vernon will grow to 8,000 acres with 3,200 acres under crop. Dividing his estate into five farms, four working farms where the heavy lifting takes place, and each of those farms divided into seven fields. Uh, Washington will tap into the worldwide market for wheat, uh, recognizing there's a significant demand for a what's called super fine flour. Uh, it's like pastry grade flour by today's standards. And he builds a grist mill to be able to produce that grade of flour that he ships to Italy, Spain, Portugal, down to the West Indies, all up and down the eastern seaboard. What we do in historic trades is we take that seven-year crop rotation. We demonstrate it on a site that's about four and a half acres, but people coming down can see the different fields, the fields Mm -hmm. in wheat, fields in um, corn and potatoes and what Washington called green manures. We know them as nitrogen fixers. Today, they're plants like clover and buckwheat that you plow back in the soil so it gets healthier. We are demonstrating uh, the same type of farming techniques today that were taking place here at Mount Vernon during Washington's lifetime. It's, um, so the farm, I guess the gristmill would be the other sort of major. Yeah, do you want to walk us through? Uh, absolutely. Because if uh, we'll, we'll put a link on this episode page so that people can actually see the operation of the gristmill, but it is, it, you, you just got to see it. It is. It's, it's the same. It, uh, one of the things that I always tell people is, like, I get to play with really cool toys at work. Um, we run an 18th century water power grist mill. We get to make whiskey in the only legal 18th century open fire distillery in the nation. Um, the grist mill is located about 2.7 miles from the main estate, accessible by shuttle bus that uh, runs from April through October. Um, it is a reconstruction of both the grist mill. Uh, it is a working water power grist mill. So on any given day, you come in and probably watch us milling cornmeal. Uh, we also have a distillery that was built on its original location where we do make whiskey twice a year. Um, the grist mill is probably one of those aspects of Washington's business life that most people really don't understand anything about. We all know about Washington's being the commanding general of the Continental Army and being our first president. Washington's a farmer, but beyond that, Washington is an incredibly shrewd businessman. Um, We often say that when it comes to Washington, the bottom line is always the bottom line, Uh, looking at ways of diversifying his businesses. Uh, He does that quite well. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's one of the things I know I, before I started here, I've got my PhD in in early American history, and you just don't um, think of... uh, when it comes to somebody like Washington, you know, and, and uh, be the first to say, you know, in part because, um, yeah, I think people, like you said, don't connect to even something like the food. I mean, I, I was teaching in uh, inner city Dallas, uh, God, that'd be five, six years ago now, uh, at a community college in inner city Dallas, and you know, talking about the the cattle trade in. I mean, this is North Texas. Like, I just assume people 
would know that. And one of the students was, um, I made a joke about, you know, and this is where your steak comes from. And, and it was news to that student that steak was cow, which cow was, you know. Because, um, yeah, we're just so divorced from uh, the food production process, much less, you know, I think a lot of companies nowadays, um, you know, are, are, are really probably lucky if they've got a, a functioning five-year plan, whereas, you know, right. uh, you know in, this, in, in the 18th century, you know, if you were going to try and be a proactive business person, you couldn't help but have that just because it takes so long to do anything. Correct. Uh, which is just fascinating. Now, how did, uh, how did Mount Vernon go about uh, translating, um, you know, all these great historic documents and stuff that we have here, um, which are... And, and translate that into interpretive programs to the general public that doesn't understand these things intuitively? Uh, one of our real, truly, we, we consider ourselves pretty darn good at taking the information. Because Washington, the, we have the very unique luxury of all of Washington's writings um, and being able to take these volumes of ledgers and personal correspondence, taking them and then putting them into an interpretive plan and model. Uh, we always try to make sure that, one, that we keep Washington first and foremost in our interpretation, but to give people an understanding of, we have this information, but I need to be able to put it in a form that reaches everyone. And that's really one of the biggest challenges for us is trying to figure out where to hit. Um, you never want to, obviously never want to talk down to anybody, but you also want to make sure that you're not making it so simplistic that many of the people who are coming here are bored. Mm -hmm. So we take the, the base information we have about Washington's uh, switch from tobacco to wheat. Uh, that's very well documented. And then we create an interpretation that really touches on asking a lot of questions um, and the interpretation of who, what, where, when, why, and how. If you use those questions to each location, you're pretty much going to touch on every aspect of what the visitor is looking for and making sure that we're meeting their needs. And that's always really first and foremost for us is making sure that we get to exactly what the guest is after. And sometimes that means taking questions that can be posed to us that are a little maybe difficult to understand and filtering them through, trying to figure out what they're actually asking, and sometimes having to come go back to them and say, is this what you mean? Mm -hmm. um, um, sometimes we'll get people asking, who are you pretending to be? Well, we don't really pretend to be anybody. We, because we're not character interpreters, we are somebody who's there to really be a teacher without a classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I would like to say that we do a pretty darn good job of that as well. Yeah, and as uh, and uh, you know, we, we're going to have a whole episode uh, about uh, the character interpreter department because we also we do have a character interpreter department as well. Um, 
which I, I guess I can actually see from a guest perspective. It, they can, it, it isn't necessarily intuitive which ones are it's not. And the that's, first person, which one aren't. That's always been a real a, a problem because we know. Yeah, most of the character interpreters have like acting background and and, and, and are are generally dressed yeah. a whole lot better <laughs> than we are because we dress as um, the working class of the 18th century. Uh, we're Chesapeake working class. So our mode of dress is a whole lot different than what you see in the characters. But you see people dressed in funny clothes, and you don't really know, mm-hmm. you know, who. You know, and we'll we'll have people that will the pull out the yeah, pull out their cell phone and go, "Do you know what this is? It looks like an iPhone 6. <laughs> um, we don't say it, but um, but they they are thinking that we all because we're dressed this way all think and speak as though it were 1799. And so it is a little, it's a little tough for many people to, to be able to differentiate between why is this person speaking in this way and why is mm-hmm. this person speaking in an entirely different way. So we have to basically tell them we are interpreters, but we really are interpreting the 18th century yeah. in words and phrases and that you can understand. Yeah. Now you mentioned um, that you know most of the the historic trades department dress as sort of working class Chesapeake Bay folks, and uh, and thankfully for for my visa statement, uh, Mount Vernon you know pays its its staff today. But obviously uh, the people working here at Mount Vernon uh, were not always uh, paid historically mm-hmm. uh, here on the property. And so how do we tell? Um, the in story. How do we tell the story of the enslaved workforce at Mount Vernon here? When we're doing training for new staff, what we focus on more than anything else, and we say this: facts are your friends. Uh, people coming to Mount Vernon, their approach and understanding of slavery is really all over the board. Mm-hmm. Many come in with an agenda, with an already preconceived notion of Washington as a slave owner, either good or bad. Um, Our position is we're going to give it to you factually. Um, We never try to match what you never. The best you can hope for is people understanding that this is a really difficult time period. Uh, that Washington, as the pragmatist he was, really didn't think much of of slavery as a way to run a successful business. That it really, for him, it would have made more sense just to hire people to come in, do jobs, pay them, and then they leave and not have to do food, clothing, housing, medical care, and motivating a workforce who, by sheer definition, have no incentive to work harder or faster. Uh, we also put names to these people. Uh, that's important. Uh, just to be completely dispassionate about the issue of slavery does an injustice to those people. Uh, so when we tell stories about slavery at Mount Vernon, we put a name to it. Uh, at the Pioneer Farm site, we have a representation of a single family slave dwelling. And we talk about 
the plow woman, Scylla, who was a plow woman at one of Washington's outlying farms, and her six children, and her husband, who was a skilled tradesman, a ditcher, who's living at the mansion. Now, they're separated by about five miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about the day-to-day life of the enslaved population. We also make sure that we give a balanced approach to slavery. Um, it's it's very easy to try to sugarcoat it. Um, and I'm sure many people might want to have it sugarcoated, but by pretending that it didn't happen, it's not going to make it disappear. Um, we're not in the business of erasing history. But we also want to make sure that we are giving a fair representation of Washington, both good and bad. Um, and with the understanding of really Washington's approach to slavery and what his real last approach to slavery, how it how it manifests itself, and that's the freeing of his slaves. Um, we have, we'll get a lot of people that come in and ask us, well, why didn't he just free his slaves? Well, it sounds really good in theory, but the bigger question is where do they go and what do they do? Um, so for Washington, he is making sure that the slaves will have marketable skills. Um, everybody around here in, in this area, they were farmers and planters. And you need to have a skill that you can take anywhere uh, to make work. And that means being a blacksmith or a mason or a carpenter. Um, having those skill sets will mean that you will have um, a way to make a living and survive. That is great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and talking with us about the, the historic trades here. I'm delighted to to be able to share with you what we do. We're pretty proud. We hope people will come and uh, see us in historic trades, both well at the Gristmill and Distillery site, the Pioneer Farm, and the Blacksmith, and really see what happened here in the 18th century at Mount Vernon. And uh, if, if those of you that are, are, are angsty that we didn't discuss the uh the distillery more. Just wait. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.